This afternoon's sermon is based on Lord's Day 35 of the Heidelberg Catechism. That's on page 548 of the Book of Praise. There we read, What does God require in the second commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. May we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books for the laity? No, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. Thus far the catechism. After the sermon, let's respond with singing... Psalm 99, stanza 2. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Psalm 95, verse 6. Those are the words of that psalmist who called God's people to come into his presence with singing in Psalm 95. That psalmist knew the Lord is greatly to be praised and that he is a king above all gods and the angels, holy ones that surround his throne. Psalm 82 verse 1 and Psalm 89 verse 7. He certainly is not to be compared to those blocks of stone that are mere idols. This God has redeemed us given us hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone? Has he renewed us by his spirit to be his image? He desires that with our whole life we may show our thankfulness to him alone. At the same time, he is a jealous God. As a true husband is jealous for his wife and will not share her with anyone else, so the Lord is jealous of his people. Has he made a covenant with them, pledging his loyalty and faithfulness to them? He will demand their covenant obedience, love, and trust in return. For he alone is that God who brought them out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. He knows his people have a long way to go before they come to stand in his presence on the new earth. The road to that new place is filled with obstacles. There is that dangerous street of idols and images. There are those cries in the streets, come join our game. There is the attack of the devil in our sinful flesh saying, Go in alone. Your God is far away. He does not see. He does not hear. But the Lord our God says, Don't you dare. Don't put your sinful hand upon my name and try to make an image out of me. Don't twist my word or minimize my stature. Don't take away from my majesty and from my covenant grace and favor. But worship me according to my word. Make no graven image, put no tool, no hammer, 
nor any human opinion on the revelation of my name. That we may know what the Lord expects of us in the second word of his covenant, let us listen to his word this afternoon. I proclaim it to you under this theme, worship your covenant God according to his word alone. For he directs the way of that worship, punishes the neglect of that worship, and proclaims the joy of that worship. So in the first place, he directs the way of that worship. When we are confronted with this second word of God's covenant, it must strike us how much attention the Lord devotes to it. While the Lord writes the first commandment in one breath, as it were, he devotes many more words to the second. Not only that, but he reserves his fierce anger and condemnation even to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him and disobey this commandment. Isn't that strange? Isn't it so that making an image is really a far less evil than worshipping another god? Why, those who make images still want to serve the Lord, don't they? While those who worship Moloch or some other idol deny the Lord altogether. What is it about making a graven image that makes our God so angry? In order to understand the answer to these questions, we must know what making an image involved. You remember that Israel learned her image-making from her heathen neighbors. When the nations round about carved and smelted their bulls or lions, snakes and stars, they did so because they thought their gods were far away and out of touch with them. Besides, their gods were often involved in their own quarrels or games. Though they were seen as powers, they were often cruel and callous and always very, very distant. In order to bring them closer, and to try to appease them, by, they, made, they made their statues, carved their blocks of wood and stone, and put their gold and silver in the fire. Then when they thought they had their gods in hand, they pretended to feed and clothe them and keep them happy. In this way, they thought they could manipulate the gods and coax favors out of them. That's what making an image of the one true God is. Oh no, you still want to serve Yahweh. You are not a heathen who has other gods before him, but you want to serve God on your terms in the way that suits you best. Now the heathens often had a whole catalog of rituals by which they thought they could persuade their gods to be favorable to them. Sometimes those rituals even asked for the sacrifice of children or young girls, for they thought then surely the god must be pleased. Yet the Lord, the God of the covenant, had revealed himself to be an entirely different God. He did not depend on the wicked imagination of sinful men to receive honor and praise. Neither had he left his people to wallow in the fear and agony of superstition. Once he rescued Abraham from a land where he and his fathers had worshipped idols, he had made his covenant with him that Abraham might walk with him. He didn't put a piece of wood or stone or silver in his hands. He didn't make a caricature of himself, but he said to Abraham, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Genesis 17, verse 1. God gave him the gold of his word and said, in effect, only trust me to make my promises true. That word of God was to be enough for Abraham. To be sure, Abraham was to bring sacrifices to God, but these were not to be rituals or attempts to buy the favor of God. They were to be offerings of thankfulness and humility for God's grace. 
God wanted to do nothing else but direct Abraham's life that it might be a life of praise and worship, and that he might look to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews 11, verse 10. This God was no absentee landlord, no cruel and dispassionate power uninvolved with the affairs of men. He was and is our covenant God, whose single purpose is to have a people who honor him according to his word. He was and is the Lord God Almighty. There is a vast distance between him and his people. He is seated in unapproachable light. 1 Timothy 6, verse 16. When Moses was on the mountain, God put him in a cleft of rock and covered him with his hand because he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see my face and live. Exodus 33, verse 20. He alone, says Paul, has immortality, who no one has ever seen or can see. So Lord's Day 46 reminds us that we are not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner. Yet our God directs his people to the day when we will meet him face to face, 1 Corinthians 13. For he desires very close communion with his own. He created that communion when he made man and placed him in the covenant of his favor. It was not God, but our sin that caused the distance to come between him and us. It is not just a distance of space and time. It is not a distance that a sinful human being can overcome by trying to take God into his puny hands. That chasm can only be bridged by God's grace to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Only by trusting the revelation of God will we ever come into his presence. That's why God is so angry with those who would try to climb up to him in their own arrogant, misleading, and sinful way. That's why he expelled our first parents from paradise, blocking the road to the tree of life, that they would not try and take their salvation into their own hands, that they might not worship him in any other way than what he would command in his word. So God gave his covenant law and wrote this second word out for his people. In his grace, he spelled true worship out for them, even in minute detail. What they were to offer to him and what not, and when and where and how. So he commanded them to come to the temple diligently and to purify themselves and to worship in holy and joyful array. For he desired thankfulness and joy, praise in light of the forgiveness of their sins a forgiveness that was theirs in the coming Savior, their Messiah. For God wanted to bless his people, to make them happy, as a redeemed people only can be happy. But he desired worship on his terms and not on theirs. He did not allow his covenant people to undermine his authority. I am the Lord your God. Make no graven images. That is, do not put your hand, foot, mind, pen, house, habit on me. Don't try to dominate me. Box me in to your scheme of life. Don't serve me in any other way than I have commanded you in my word. Did you notice how comprehensive God's teaching was and is concerning this commandment? No graven image of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. No likeness of any figure, male or female, of any beast or bird. No deification of stars and planets. No placing trust in anyone else but God. 
Do we need to be convinced that it was necessary for Israel to be reminded of this commandment over and over again? Even as the Lord was writing down this law for his people's benefit, they were persuading Aaron the high priest to make them a golden calf, Exodus 32. Not because they wanted to be idol worshippers, but because they thought God was far away, and Moses was far away, and now we need something to hang on to, something we can see, and then we won't be alone. So Aaron made the golden calf, and the people said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. For that calf was supposed to represent vitality and life and strength, just like God. But God was not far away. He was in their midst. He was there in his cloud and in his thunder, even while the earth had just shaken with the testimony of his presence. And his word was very near to them, Oh, that it might have been in their hearts. God's people are so prone to forget, so hard of hearing. Their history is littered with man-made religion. From Micah's household shrine to Jeroboam's calves, from the disciples' confusion regarding Christ's kingdom to Galatia's legalistic Judaizers and beyond, God's covenant people have one long history of making caricatures of him. Gnostics, Manichaeans, Arminians, humanists, and false ecumenists all have this in common. They don't worship him according to his word. But what about us, beloved? Do we just nod our heads and say, yes, that's true. Wasn't it terrible? Rachel and her household gods. Jacob trusted in his own devices. The people of Israel bowed before calves, and many modernists today only twist God's word to suit themselves. Glad we are better. For we worship the Lord according to his word. Glad we don't have statues of Mary and some other saints or strings of prayer beads, woman in office and knocking on doors to earn our seat in God's kingdom. Yes, we may be glad when by God's grace we may know what true worship is and what is just a sham. We may rejoice that we don't have to seek our comfort in some empty ritual, the work of some saint, or the promises of some self-appointed savior. The question is, does this mean we are immune to making an image of God? Let us examine ourselves. God's word demands that we serve the Lord with all our heart and soul and mind. Do we do that? Or do we think that a half-hearted effort will do? If so, we're guilty of sin against the second commandment. God says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice of thankfulness to me. Romans 12. Remember your bodies are temples of my Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do we, re do we remember and honor him? Do we take proper care of our bodies, being careful not just what goes into our mouths, but what comes out of them? If not, if we think that it is really only our business, we've made an image of the one true God. Christ said, I will build my church, and the gates of death shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, verse 18. I will. If we now think that church building depends on our efforts, we transgress this commandment. Do you think you would show up in these pews when it suited you? Or do you think the church service is subject to your choice? God says, you do not serve me according to my revealed will. You need to repent, for you are making an image out of me. There are so many sinful ways of doing so. Do you consider your wallet, mind, relationship to your boyfriend, 
girlfriend, husband, wife, father, mother, car, job, ambition outside of God's reach, God's care and keeping. You and I have an image of God and of Christ to whom all authority is given. You thought you could do without the communion of saints that God created to be kept in love without respect of persons. You've decided to be selective in your love. Only love the ones you, who agree with your particular view, your taste and your style. You do so at the expense of your brother and sister. You are making a caricature of God who said you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Brothers and sisters, the list could go on. God knows the hearts of those who swear by the temple and the church and the confessions, but who are in danger of being gods unto themselves. Just as he sees those who think they can do without the church and the Bible and its good confessions. Yet he would direct our worship, for he is a gracious God. He sent his son into the world that we might be renewed after his image. That royal son wrestled with the evil one who tempted him to make an image of God. He did it by misquoting God's word, the devil's favorite ploy, also today. But Christ made no graven image. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he wrestled with the cup his father gave him to drink. He went to the cross and surrendered himself to the Father in obedience to his word, that in thankfulness and joy for this deliverance, we might make no graven image of our God and Savior. Brothers and sisters, do not pay lip service to him. Bow before him, you and I and our children, you and your boyfriend, you and your spouse, you and your grandfather, grandmother, widow, and senior saints. Be prepared to honor him. Are we called to Christ's table to eat and drink for the strengthening of that faith needed to worship him uprightly? Let us do so with reverence deep and in the full awareness of God's great love and the sure realization of the seriousness of this commandment. For he is a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate him. In the second place, our covenant God wants us to be well aware of the consequences of willful, willful disobedience to his covenant commandments. He reminds us of the fact that he is a jealous God. We should be well aware of his holy jealousy. So very much aware that a holy fear of God motivates us to honor his command. Oh, to be sure, we should understand God's threat in this commandment very well. When the Lord says that he visits the sins of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate him, then he doesn't say this will happen just like that. Nor does he say this to bring grief and pain to parents who love their God with all their heart, but have certain weaknesses against which they fight their whole life. The Lord doesn't wish to bring us to despair when we see children going astray. Although he is a jealous God, he is not a cruel or vicious God. Neither can any child who has come of age and who knows the will of the Lord blame his punishment and his misery upon his parents. You remember God's good instruction by the mouth of the prophet Ezekiel when Judah raised a false lament and said, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and now the children's teeth are set on edge. Ezekiel 18 verse 2. When those children have come of age and have been confronted with the law of the Lord, they are responsible for their sins. The soul that sins shall die, says the Lord, while the wicked man who repents shall surely live, Ezekiel 18. 
Yet the Lord confronts us with the inevitable result when parents neglect the true worship of God and make a mockery of his commandments. When their children, following the wrong example of their parents, keep it up and go from bad to worse, God says that the result will be disastrous. When their sins are heaped up, he will come and scatter them in his covenant anger. There can come a time that he will say to prophet and to minister alike, Do not pray for them anymore. Do not intercede with me for them, for I do not hear you. Jeremiah 6, verse 16. God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him, or as we could also read, those who keep hating me. Those who do not break with evil and turn around and do good. If they don't, if they persist and they walk in the footsteps of Cain and in the counsel of Balaam and do not repent, they will be lost. I think of what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, where the Lord reminded Israel that he is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Would he take them into the promised land and shower them with blessings? He would not stand for it to see himself and his blessings despised by Israel corrupting itself through idolatry. Be careful, God said, don't forget the covenant of the Lord your God. That is, do not forget to honor me, you and your children and grandchildren. For if you won't, you cannot survive. I will scatter you among the nations, and only a few of you will survive. Let us realize the implication of this word of God for us and our children. Let us understand the significance of this commandment. Our life is at stake here. How important it is to set a good example for worship, for prayer, for the study of God's word in our homes. You can give the Lord a very important place in your life. You open God's word at breakfast and dinner table, and you have a Bible at your bedside. You truly live with your God and his word. Or you only have a Bible to leave it in church because you think you can do without it during the week. When you and I start to take it easy and we have no interest in the things of God and we live a worldly life, then a whole generation can perish unless by God's grace they turn from the evil way we deposited in their lap. If you and I are always critical of the church and the office bearers, of your brothers and sisters in the Lord, how can you expect your children to maintain the communion of saints? We'll drive them away from the Lord and his church by our cruel and persistent lovelessness. If the service of the Lord is always a burden and we always complain about the cost, will you expect your children to maintain the ministry of the gospel in the schools? If you do not pass on the practice and importance of prayer, modeling a godly life to your children, will we not leave them open to making or having an image of God only? Will we not be responsible if they don't grow up to offer their lives to him? Will we not be co-responsible for their ultimate judgment? Let us heed the cry of our Heavenly Father who desires a family which serves him from the heart, a family which realizes that it has no claim on the work of the Holy Spirit, no claim on faith, no claim on God's love, a church which recognizes that it is not good enough to be in the church, but that you must also be of the church by a true faith in Jesus Christ. That church must stand in awe of God's judgment that will bring... That church must stand in awe of God's judgment that will begin in her midst, 1 Peter 4, verse 17. That people must realize that from those who have been given much, much will be asked. We have been given much, oh, so much. We've been granted the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. 
We have been shown the way of salvation. We have been called to worship the Lord with gladness. God the Father visited the sins of all his children on his Son. He poured out his wrath on him so that we might not be condemned and come into judgment. We have God's word, and there is not one of us who will not be able to say, Abba, Father. Let us then realize our calling. Let's open our eyes to the dangers of formalism, the danger of going through the motions of faith only without committing the heart. God himself warned that such formalism would be rampant in the last days. I think of 2 Timothy 3. In those days, said Paul, people will have a form of godliness but deny its power. It means their religiosity will be nothing but a facade. They will have made an image of God showing up for church on Sunday, perhaps, but not truly loving the Lord, not cherishing the power of the Holy Spirit to lead holy lives of joy to the Lord. Yes, thanks, yet thanks and praise be to God, who has given us his word, so that by his grace we may make no graven images, but be taught the living and preaching of his word. In this way we may be exhorted to keep God's commandments. Then we will be blessed as partakers of the joy of true worship. Let us hear it in the third place, how God blesses the joy of true worship. How abundant is the love of God. He doesn't desire our demise and destruction. He does not wish to visit us in his wrath. He desires true worship, that he might bless the faithful congregation, that there might be generations of those who fear the Lord and sing of his goodness. He delights in the genuine joy of his children. He is willing to provide her that joy. He will show steadfast love to thousands who love him and keep his commandments. He will instruct his church in a way that is effective. He will not have his people taught by dumb images, says the catechism, but by the living preaching of the gospel. The preacher is under obligation to proclaim that gospel, and we are all under obligation to receive it and to live in thankful response to it. Therefore, no images such as were found in abundance in the churches at the time of the Reformation. Rome used those images as books for the laity, to instruct the laity, the common people considered of much lower rank than the clergy. The church said the laity do not have a right to read the Bible or to know much about it, for they were butchers and bakers and candlestick makers. They were said to have dirty hands. Yet, said the church, they need to know something about God, so they had them learn from the adoration of the saints, those holy people who were supposed to have lived exemplary lives, as well as from looking at relics. No, said the reformers in light of the gospel, the glad tidings are for rich and poor, educated or not. There is one book for God's laos, God's people. It is the word, the Bible, and it must be preached to everyone. That's what we read in Romans 10. That's why the preacher has those beautiful feet, not because of frequent trips to a podiatrist, but because of the glorious message of salvation he is to bring to the people. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe, Romans 1 verse 16. That's the message the preacher must bind on their hearts. How will they hear without a preacher, asks Paul. Not because a person can't be saved by coming to know the Lord simply by reading the Bible, but because Christ has set apart the preaching of the gospel as his normal and effective way of proclaiming his covenant love and justice. Now Rome has had a house cleaning of sorts and many of their church buildings have few images and statues. Yet images are tolerated in, in an ever-increasing number of churches today. 
In many places, the living preaching is dying out to be replaced by a kind of social hour, complete with testimonials, perhaps, and the music of some band. But it makes a mockery of the biblical command to preach Christ. Around the world, God's word is being twisted to suit man's current opinions, his thirst not for the word, but for political correctness. But it is making a graven image of the living God and his word, and it will lead to inviting God's wrath. There is no future in it, beloved, no hope and joy and comfort in it. The God of the Bible is denied, and the Christ of salvation is bypassed. This Christ would not have us scattered and confused by the opinions of men. He desires his word to be proclaimed in purity and truth. He would have his children long for what Peter calls the pure spiritual milk, so that they may grow up to salvation. He desires ministers of the word to proclaim the good news. The spirit would penetrate our hearts and minds that we might have life and have it abundantly. Pray for this living preaching. Pray that there may be men to proclaim it. Pray for the hearts of the people to receive it. Pray for ongoing reformation of the church and for her increase in godliness and holiness. Remember the work of mission at home and abroad. Be a missionary, a confessor of Christ, and a true evangelist. Don't leave it to the ministers and missionaries only. We are all to be prophets, so that by us confessing his great and glorious name, people may come to have life in his name. Then the household of God will ring out with praise. Then God's children will be comforted in their distress. Then the church will be directed to acknowledge her Lord and Savior. Then when Christ walks in her midst, her candlestick will burn with the brightness of his presence. Then we may expect God's blessing. Then there will be a holy priesthood, a spiritual house, which may go forward until all appear on Zion's mount, God's holy dwelling. Amen.